And if you want to change your character, you have to change, in dependence on the Spirit of God, uh, you have to change your habit. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Today, the one and only J.P. Moreland will join us for a Christ and Culture conversation about the soul. After that, Sherelle Duxworth will talk to us about the movie Encanto. But first, it's time for our segment called In the News. Now, Dr. Keithley, let me begin this segment with a quote. The quote is this. I'm not a biologist. Those are the words of Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson when asked to define what a woman is. Judge Jackson's words, along with an additional controversy at an NCAA women's swim meet, have continued a national conversation about gender. Now, Dr. Keithley, we had a recent episode with Jordan Stefaniak talking about gender. We have another one in the pipeline. Let's just take a step back and ask this question, and I'll ask it to you. Why is this question about gender so important for us to get right right now? Well, if you'll notice, you asked the question, why is the question about gender so important? And the very fact that you use the word gender instead of sex is significant. I think if you look back at the conversation uh, that was going on in the nomination process, and if you listen to the conversations that go on around this, most people today are making a distinction between sex and gender. In other words, they would say that biologically speaking, people are sexually male or they are female. And they're talking about the, the typical uh, X and Y chromosomes and matters of anatomy. Whereas they would say uh, that is determined by a biology, they would say things concerning gender is socially constructed. And so they would say that there's a great deal of overlap and typically those who are biologically male will have uh, the sociological factors associated with men. And those who are biologically female will typically have the sociological framework of, of being a woman. And so they make a distinction between male and men and female and, and women. And, and, and I have to just be honest with you that even that conversation is fluid and is moving on. So the reason why so many of us who come from a traditional background and are used to the, the simple biblical categories, we struggle with this. I will be the first to admit that there are sociological factors associated with gender. It is true that certain uh, in certain cultures or societies, men will do certain things that they won't do in other cultures. And, and that's fine. You know, we, we understand that. Same thing when it comes to, to, to dealing with women. Having said that, I think that, that that can only be stretched so far, that there is a real connection between biology and not just sexuality, but gender. This is important for us today as Christians because the Bible presents the distinction between male and female as something that originated with God himself in the creation account, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. 
we find through the law of Moses, it talks about then maintaining a healthy understanding of what it means to be uh, male, what it means to be female, and all of the uh, sociological, cultural things that we would associate with gender with that. And then we find those distinctions carry on into the New Testament. And so I do believe that to have a robust, healthy understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ, it's true that Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 says there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor bond, but all are one in Jesus Christ. We find our identity in him. But then the apostle goes on to explain that we then live out our identity in Christ in the proper ways within government and within the church and within the home. And so I do think that it is important that we have a, a, a biblical, healthy understanding of these things. In these days of such confusion, it is important that we as Christians present the biblical model clearly, graciously, and winsomely. Could we put it this way, Dr. Keithley, that Genesis 1 and 2 kind of gives us the blueprint for what it means to be human, and in particular, what it means to be male and female. Inevitably, in a fallen world, sin has marred the blueprint a little bit for what it looks like for each one of us, but that we do well to shepherd our people back towards the blueprint, not further away from it, which I think a lot of voices in our culture want to do. Say, just forget the blueprint, do what you want to do. Yeah, and we do understand that Whenever, whenever we're talking about male and female in terms of sexuality, that we want to be careful when we talk about gender, that we do not become rigid to we say, well, this means that women cannot be engineers or that men should not be nurses. In other words, those are the kinds of things that we don't we don't want to make the mistake. These whenever, culturally bound yeah, definitions yeah, of yeah. what that Yeah, and looks so like. whenever we talk about gender, uh, it's true that we have allowed culture at times to be too restrictive. At the same time, we do not want to completely sever gender from sexuality. It is true that we are created male and female and that gender is typically expressions of that within the biblical boundaries. Thank you, Dr. Keithley, for answering that question today. Before we jump into our conversation with Dr. J.P. Moreland, one quick reminder, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a brief rating and review. It goes a long way to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. What is the soul and why does it matter? Maybe you've never even thought about this question. Today, we're honored to have with us Dr. J.P. Moreland to discuss this important topic, and I can't imagine anyone better to discuss this topic with. Dr. Moreland needs no introduction for many. He is philosopher, theologian, and apologist who serves as Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University in California. And he has spoken and debated over on over 200 college campuses, taught in more than 500 churches around the world. He's a prolific author, and his most recent book is titled A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles, Instruction and Inspiration for Living Supernaturally 
in Christ. And I've got to say, not many philosophers would have the courage to take up such a topic, but this is the case with Dr. Moreland. Dr. Moreland, thank you for being with us today. Well, I'm so glad to be with you, brothers. So for our listeners, Dr. Moreland was with us for about a week on campus here at Southeastern. He spoke several times about anything from mental health and spiritual vitality and formation uh, to the nature of the soul. And today we're going to ask him a variety of questions related to these things. So let me just start with this, Dr. Moreland. As we think of the notion of a soul or the idea of a soul, it's often ignored or ridiculed or just assumed in weird ways. On the simple level, what is the soul and why does it matter? Well, the soul is a, an immaterial or non-physical uh, substance that contains consciousness and animates the body. So the soul is a thing, a self that contains consciousness and enlivens or animates the body. Sometimes I hear your position described as something called substance dualism. Would you take that label? And if you do, would you tell us what that label means? Yes. It means that I either am a soul or have a soul and it's not physical and I have a body uh, and it is physical, but um, I could leave my body at, at death. And so Substance dualism is the idea that there is a soul that's a substantial thing that is related to a body, and but they're not the same thing. So there are times uh, I hear that position ridiculed as sort of like the, the ghost in the machine, that, that I am simply uh, an operator utilizing my body. Uh, the way perhaps uh, a person would use a piece of heavy machinery. Uh, but that's, you're, you're arguing something different than something like that. You, you're arguing for a much more powerful connection between the body and the soul, are you not? I am. And, and that's a great point, Ken, because uh, throughout human history, 99% of the people up to today believed in some kind of soul. And the Bible seems to me to clearly teach that we have souls so that when we die, we go into an intermediate state. The, the ideal state is to have a body again, which we'll get at the final resurrection. But we do exist disembodied. And my understanding of the soul is that it is not just like the driver of a car that, that's not a bad illustration. So I'm not just uh, moving my body, but my, I, my soul is giving life to my body. And it is deeply uh, diffused throughout the body. And it turns the body into a, a living part of me. Uh, if the soul left the body, on my view, there, there would not be a body anymore. It would be a dead corpse. So it is the presence of the soul that is fully present all throughout the body. That's why if you get your arm cut off, you're not 90% of a person or a soul, but it is what enlivens the body and makes the body relevant to spiritual formation and growth. So tell me this, Dr. Mullen, do you, in one of your talks at Southeastern, you, you gave kind of a uh, almost like an anatomy of the soul. Whereas if we think about uh, the anatomy of our bodies, it's pretty easy to see the 
sort of the exterior features or even the organs, the internal organs of our body, we recognize that we have those kinds of parts. But you talked about parts to the soul and even the faculties of the soul. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, the soul isn't like uh, a heap of sand or a pile of lumber. It's not built up out of these uh, parts that you could take out of the pile and they'd still exist. Uh, But the soul does have an internal structure to it. And this has been called faculties. And a faculty is just a, a set of abilities that we have. For example, I have the ability to think about the multiplication tables, though I'm not using that right now, but I still possess those powers or abilities. And so a fact, you might think of a faculty as just a compartment within the soul. And we have a, the, the mind is a faculty of the soul. It contains my abilities to think and have beliefs and reason. My emotions are all belong to a, the emotional faculty of my soul. My will is a, is a group of, of powers to choose. And all those powers belong to the volitional faculty of my soul. And then I believe that the spirit is, is not a separate thing. It's not like there are two things in my body, my soul and my spirit, but I take the, the spirit to be another faculty that's within the soul. And it's, it consists of my powers to, to receive uh, the regenerative seed of God that is planted in me at regeneration. And it contains my, I think, abilities to be aware of the presence of God and even of demonic and angelic beings. So I like to think of these as just a, a, a group of, you might say, internal compartments that are all depend upon the soul for their existence, but they're within the soul. The mind, the will, the volition, the emotions, the spirit are all, you might say, components of the soul. So those things that you just described, which is fascinating, while the soul is in the body, Yes. It's clear that somehow uh, all of those faculties are employing the brain in order to function. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the soul employs the brain and how one affects the other? Because I can think of people with brain damage and it affected them, their personality dramatically. And yet we understand there's some kind of immaterial thing going on there. Um, so so how do we understand that give and take uh, of the soul and the, and, the, and the body and brain? Very important question, uh, because uh, in my view, God created the soul so that it functions uh, by means of using the body. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, I have a, a certain kind of soul that has a, the power of sight. I, I have a visual faculty. But I can't just see things without using my optic nerve and my eyeballs and so on. So my eyes don't see, I do, but I use a, a, a tool, you might say, my, my eyes. Now, if my eyes are damaged, I won't be able to see. Similarly, it is my soul with the faculty of mind that thinks. My brain doesn't think. My brain doesn't have memories in it. Uh, my brain is an electrolyzed piece of meat that has uh, neuron cells and so on. But while I'm in the body, Ken, my mind uses the brain 
to engage in a lot of like thinking and other sorts of things. So that if the brain is damaged, it would be like the steering wheel of a car being damaged. I, that would limit my ability to drive around town if I were stuck in the car, but it wouldn't prove I was the car. Uh, I would be using the steering wheel. Well, similarly, I'm not my brain, but while I'm in my body, if my brain is damaged, it will affect my ability to recall memories. Similarly, we have learned that that when I do things in my soul, it can change my body. We have discovered, for example, that if I start thinking certain thoughts, like suppose I have an obsessive compulsive disorder where I wash my hands 50, 75 times a day. Uh, if I start thinking every time that urge comes, wait a minute, I don't need to wash my hands. I'm not going to die. But if I practice this for about three weeks and they do a brain scan, what you discover is just by thinking in my soul, my brain has been completely restructured so that it is now healthy and it isn't damaged. Hmm. So there, the, the, uh, the causal relationship goes both ways. My soul can affect my body. I can will to raise my hand to vote, but my body can limit what my soul can do if it's damaged in one way or another. Well, the, the pastoral and ministerial um, implications of that are enormous. Dr. Moylan, you're talking about sort of this, this interrelationship between, in that case, the mind-body or brain-body. I want to go back to then the, the anatomy of the soul that you were describing in a similar way that we know it's good for us to, uh, to exercise our bodies well and to be considerate of what we put into our bodies. You've made similar points about our spiritual health or our soul yeah. health or soul care, we might say. What kind of things might we take away from this for everyday yeah. life and practice? Well, I, I have spelled all this out in a book I wrote on anxiety and depression called Finding Quiet, but I'll give a quick summary here. Um, we all have habits. Uh, I have penmanship habits. I have, uh, you know, people who play the piano have certain habits of, of, of doing that. Uh, I, some people have habits of, you know, picking their nails or what have you. Now, your character is really the sum total of your good and bad habits. And if you want to change your character, you have to change, in dependence on the Spirit of God, uh, you have to change your habits. How do you do that? Well, Paul says that sin resides, or fleshliness resides in the members of our body, in our stomachs, in our, in our different organs and regions. And so to present our body to God uh, as an instrument of well-being and righteousness what he really means is that we need to start practicing certain repetitive habits over and over again, like fasting or, or like practicing being warm and smiling to people at people. And even if we don't really feel it, it, that's okay because we're trying to get to the point where this becomes just second nature, part of our habits. And so the importance of the body uh, in spiritual growth is, is this, it is the body that actually contains our habits. And by changing our habits, we change our, our character from having bad or fleshly habits to having replaced them with grooves that are more conducive to the kingdom of God and its nature. It sounds like you're describing uh, spiritual muscle memory that, that uh, there are certain uh, uh, 
traits and characteristics that that are just uh, second nature to us because this is something that we've done over and over again. Yeah. So that whenever we find ourselves in particular situations, we react almost without thinking in a particular way, and and that's the goal for us as Christians is to almost react without thinking in a way that will glorify the Lord. Uh, uh, and so, so I, that seems to be what I hear you saying. Oh, uh, right on the money. Absolutely. Um, we all know that we can train our muscles uh, memory to change. Um, if, you t- if you said to a person, uh, I want you to go up and pinch it, and I want you to hit it over, out of the park. We need to run. But the person has never played baseball. Well, uh, that's not going to work. What you do want is someone who has been to that batting cage so many times that when he gets up to the plate, he doesn't think about how to swing. He automatically is habituated to swing in a certain way. Now, you take a person who hasn't practiced the, the craft of being grateful or, or the craft, the, the habit of greeting a troublesome situation by not being anxious, but calming down and and comforting themselves and making that a habit. Well, if they get in a situation where they've got to step up to the plate and something terrible's happened, uh, if they haven't practiced these things, they're not probably going to be able to just automatically have the peace of Christ. Uh, but if they are used to training themselves to, to repetitively each day practice forming the habit of being at being peaceful and grateful, as you pointed out, that is going to get triggered automatically because it is a part of our very character. And that's, that's not all of how we grow, but it sure is an important component. Yeah, I, my uh, grandson is uh, taking music lessons, uh, and his teacher has a poster on the wall that says, don't practice till you get it right practice till you can't get it wrong. Oh, and, and, and I thought that really is, there's, there's a lot of truth in that statement. Yeah. That is powerful. Yeah. Dr. Moreland. So I want to play devil's advocate here for just a second, because I can imagine a critic hearing what you said and saying, well, that, that sounds like a, a fake it till you make it spirituality or something, but I know you and your work well enough to know you have a deep reliance on the spirit of God when it comes to these things. Can you speak to that as well? Yes, I would never try to step out and grow on on my own ability. Now, look, some of the principles of the Bible are so true to what we are that even a non-Christian could read them and get some benefit from practicing them. So I don't deny that. But why should I settle for second best? I want to grow as much as I can. And I know to do that, I have to depend on the Spirit. So what do I mean by that? I say to, to the Spirit, I, I want now to, to, to have a time of practicing not being anxious or practicing expressing gratitude. I ask you to fill me and to help empower me to do that uh, be, be, beyond what I'm capable of in my own self. And so I depend on the spirit to, to energize and empower me to go beyond what I could do by just practicing these things by myself. Now, admittedly, suppose I started expressing gratitude. I wanted to form the habit. 
early on, I might not actually feel grateful for the things I'm, I'm telling God I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. But that's not hypocrisy. If you're doing that as the beginning of a training so that you can get to the point where you really do mean it. So the question people need to ask is, how, if, if I don't really feel grateful for things, how do I get there? How can I actually become a grateful person? And you have to start somewhere. So you just, as long as you want to, to be genuinely grateful, then you take these steps so that you'll get there. And that's not hypocrisy. Yeah, that's good. What resources would you recommend? You've mentioned a book or two that you have authored. Can you tell us, uh, can you recommend to our listeners uh, perhaps some resources that would be helpful in this area? The first one uh, about, is there a soul and how do we know this? I have a little book with Moody Press called The Soul, How We Know It's Real and Why It Matters. So for those interested in that, that might help. Two books on the importance of practicing spiritual habits would be my book, Finding Quiet, and, and a book by Dallas Willard called The Spirit of the Disciplines, mm -hmm. where Dallas Willard in the book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, goes in some detail about how it is important to bring our bodies into our spiritual life mm -hmm. and through habit formation and dependence on the spirit. Fantastic. Dr. Mullen, this is incredibly helpful and, and seems to me only the beginning of a conversation that we need to continue uh, perhaps in the months ahead. So I'd love to hear more, especially on your book, Finding Quiet, and perhaps we can have a time where we, we dive a little deeper into that and you share more of your story there. So thank you for being with us today. It has been my privilege. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Few recent movies have captured families' imaginations like Encanto. As we conclude today's episode, Sherelle Duxworth joins us to reflect on an important takeaway from the film, namely that you are more than your gift. Colorful imagery, great music, and the beauty and vibrancy of Colombian culture is on full display in Disney's 2021 movie Encanto. No doubt, Encanto was a hit. If you don't believe me, ask the thousands of parents whose children continue to talk about Bruno while simultaneously singing, we don't talk about Bruno. But Encanto was more than entertaining. Personally, I found it to be convicting, and for me, it sparked spiritual reflection. As a matter of fact, while I was watching it, I silently sat and talked to the Lord about my own struggles. The movie reminded me that I had. After my own reflection, I called many of my friends and raved about the film and encouraged them to watch it as a family and discuss the things that stood out to them. So what was it about Encanto that was so spiritually in tune for me? I found the characters and their stories to have spiritual relevance, specifically Luisa, Mirabel, and Abuela Amo. 
These stories I resonated with. Let me begin with Louisa. Personally, I identified with Louisa the most. I am a self-diagnosed workaholic. I am seen as highly capable and reliable to most people in my circles. Consequently, I carry a lot. I tend to work a lot, help others a lot, and try to carry everyone's burdens. While these traits have undoubtedly produced fruit and blessings in my life, they have been at times the place where I've equated my own human value. I've often felt like if I don't work or have something tangible to offer, then I am of no value to anyone. Watching Louisa struggle and hearing her sing that amazing song, Pressure, I thought about my own life. Her story reminded me to look objectively at myself and think about how work should not define who I am. Sure, my work is an extension of my passions, desires, abilities, and individuality, but it is not who I am. Therefore, I can rest, I can say no when I need to, and I can trust that God is not disappointed in me when I fail or when I can't do the work that's in front of me. Then there's Mirabelle. As a young adult, Mirabelle had lived through the reality that she possessed no gift in a family filled with gifted relatives. All of the relatives had tangible gifts, gifts that brought great benefit to the community. Mirabelle's lack of a gift left her feeling like she did not belong in the family, that she was of no use to the family or community, and that she was a spectator in the miracle everyone else in her family were a part of. Of course, Mirabelle spent most of the movie trying to prove that she belonged, she overcompensated for her lack of a gift, and ultimately ended up trying to save her family as a means to earn her place in that family. Some of us may be like Mirabelle. Maybe we don't have the sparkly spiritual gift like preaching, prophecy, tongue speaking, miracles, and teaching, which seems to be the gift that everyone wants. Maybe we don't see how we belong to the family of God. Let me just say that our spiritual gifts are not what makes us members of the family. Instead, they are a byproduct of being in the family of God. Secondly, we all have gifts, even if they are not the ones that get the most attention or are seen as the important gifts. Lastly, our gifts are meant for service and not to save the family of God. Now, Abuela Alma was a little bit different. At the beginning of the movie, Alma is given a miracle by a candle. The candle in her time of desperation gives her a home, and Alma and her three children are saved from danger, destruction, and destitution. Soon, her trauma leads her to try to work so hard as to not be faced with the same tragedy she faced when she had to flee her home at the beginning of the film. Though Alma received the gift freely, she pressured and pushed her family to work hard enough to earn the gift. This reminded me of the gift of salvation. It is easy for us to acknowledge that salvation is a free gift of grace, but we often end up trying to prove to God that we deserve to be saved or we think that we must perform righteousness hard enough to remain within the family of God or to keep the miracle alive. Remember, we couldn't do enough to earn our salvation and we can't do enough to keep it. So you see, Encanto was deep and I encourage you to go and see it. Sherelle Duxworth serves as a sociology instructor at Lewisburg College in Lewisburg, North Carolina. She is currently working on a Ph.D. in Systematic Theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you all for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'll take the next week off, but we'll be back with new episodes on April 22nd. 
Happy Easter, everyone, and have a great day.